Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit msnbc.com slash app to download. Good evening, everyone. We begin tonight with day four of the Israel-Hamas war, which now includes a hostage crisis. We'll get to more on that later in the show. The surprise attack by the Gaza-based militant group Hamas shocked Israelis and the world after the group launched an attack on a concert in southern Israel near the Gaza border. And armed men kidnapped or murdered Israeli citizens in their homes and cars in several border areas. Israeli Defense Forces, the IDF, have since bombarded Gaza with aerial bombs, with Israeli officials telling residents to leave the blockaded strip of land, which now faces an Israeli siege and a potential ground operation. The Israeli government announced today that it has regained control of the towns attacked by Hamas. But the devastation is vast, and the destruction on either side of the wall between southern Israel and Gaza is almost unfathomable. The Israeli military said it struck hundreds of Hamas targets overnight in Gaza. Tens of thousands of residents fled their homes and as relentless airstrikes leveled buildings. Fishing boats and other vessels were on fire after Israel pounded the port Gaza city with airstrikes, the port of Gaza city with airstrikes. You can see here the wide scale destruction in Gaza's Jabalia refugee camp caused by Israeli airstrikes in the area. And in the city of Ashkelon, Hamas said it launched a major missile attack in response to the displacement of civilians. Many of the rockets fired towards Ashkelon were intercepted by Israel's Iron Dome missile defense system, which is designed to shoot down incoming projectiles. At the border itself, Israeli troops are massing, getting ready for a potential ground incursion into Gaza. Meanwhile, deadly clashes at Israel's northern border with Lebanon are raising fears of a broader regional conflict. The conflict, as of now, has already killed nearly 2,000 people. The death toll in Israel has surpassed 1,000, and at least 919 people have been killed in Gaza and the West Bank, according to the health ministries there. President Biden said at least 14 American citizens are among the dead and confirmed that American citizens are among the hostages held by Hamas. Earlier today, he addressed where the U.S. stands. You know, there are moments in this life, and I mean this literally, when the pure, unadulterated evil is unleashed on this world. The people of Israel lived through one such moment this weekend. Moss offers nothing but terror and bloodshed with no regard to who pays the price. The loss of innocent life is heartbreaking. Like every nation in the world, Israel has the right to respond. Around the world, countries are scrambling to find citizens dead or missing in this war, and that includes the U.S. In a news conference in Tel Aviv, relatives of American citizens who are missing or believed to have been taken hostage by Hamas pleaded with authorities in the U.S. and Israel for help. Both my brother and my sister we're on the call with her as the terrorist barged into her home. And we heard a little, heard a little bit of screaming. And that's, uh, that was our, our last contact with her. It is our hope, which is 
a little bit ridiculous at this stage to say that um, the optimistic scenario here is that she's held hostage in Gaza and not dead on the street of the kibbutz where we grew up. At least 100 people are believed to be hostages of Hamas, and the group promises to execute them in response to attacks in Gaza. I'm joined now by MSNBC chief correspondent Ali Velshi in Ashdod, Israel. Uh, Ali, it has been quite a 24 hours. Please give us an update on what you're seeing there, what you're hearing. Well, first of all, that's uh, you can't see it uh, because it's dark, but that's Gaza. It's 40 kilometers behind me. But every now and then you'll see a flash uh, and then you'll hear the, the thud. The attacks on Gaza continue tonight. They are coming from two places. Uh, there are jets that fly over us and then you uh, see the, the bombing. Uh, right now we don't have jets. They're working on four hour shifts. The Air Force bombards for four hours. They're off now. And then it becomes the Navy. They send uh, they send uh, cruise missiles in from the Mediterranean. So right now, it's the Navy's shift to, to bomb Gaza. It is a developing humanitarian crisis. It's closed off. From the Israeli perspective, you heard from President Biden today. You heard for, about the support for Israel that America is providing. About 100 kilometers this way, there's an air base. Uh, Americans have landed their first plane there with munitions for, uh, for Israel. There's two sort of camps in Israel. One says pummel Hamas and decapitate them for everything they did. The other camp, by the way, you can hear the, the bombs going off. You can hear the explosions behind me, perhaps. The other camp are the families of those who are being held hostage. And what they want is their family members back. Their whole point here is do whatever you need to do to Hamas afterward, get our families out. The complexity of this joy is the way to get the families out. There's two ways to do that. One is a negotiation with, with Hamas, which the Israelis find distasteful at the best of times, particularly after this attack on Saturday. America doesn't have a relationship with, with uh, Hamas, nor does Israel. So you'd have to use an intermediary for that, possibly Qatar. Iran is their other friend, but America doesn't have a relationship with Iran either. Option two is moving troops into Gaza and trying to find those people. This is fraught with peril because of the density of, of Gaza Strip and, and Gaza City. So that is the, the, the problem in Israel right now. These hostages, uh, it is a, it's, a, it's an intractable issue because not only are Israelis feeling remarkable deep fear uh, for after what happened the other day, there's anger, there's anguish, the streets of the cities. And last night you and I were talking when I was in, uh, in Tel Aviv, they're empty. Uh, the, the, the fear is is tangible and everybody knows somebody who has been affected by this, Joy. So uh, both this side of the border and the Gaza side of the border, people are living in fear tonight. Let me, let's talk a little bit more about this hostage crisis, because I think you, you put your, your finger on it, is that the hostages presumably are across, as you just pointed to, in Gaza. So they are inside Gaza, where Israel, you know, their intelligence obviously failed in terms of not anticipating the attacks. They don't clearly have that many eyes inside of there. Uh, on the Israeli side, do they have any idea where those hostages might be, is first part of the question. And the second part is, is Egypt being engaged? Because, of course, we know that if we put the map up again, on the other side of Gaza is Egypt. And that's the only other way out, by the way, of of uh, Gaza is to go into Correct. Egypt. We know that border crossing has been bombed, so that's not even open. It, it, how would even Israeli troops get in? Is there is there a plan? Are they talking about how they would even go and try to find the hostages, which we now know might include some Americans as well? 
So here's the situation. There are always Israeli drones over Gaza. Israel can see everything that you can see from above Gaza. They can see the entire landscape, which is, begs the question how these, uh, these uh, Hamas attackers came to learn how to para, paraglide and, and do things like that because they couldn't do it in sight of the Israelis. But Israel can't see what's in those buildings. It can't see what's underneath those buildings. And that may be where the hostages are. It's a small place, but it's all buildings and it's all densely populated. If you have 100 hostages, you could spread them all over the place and use them as human shields. So would that be a rescue mission? Because otherwise, it's just going to be door-to-door combat in a, in a place that the Gazans know better than the Israelis do. And that's going to end up in a lot of tragedy on both sides. Now, as to your second question about Egypt, there is a crossing. It's called the Rafah crossing in Egypt. There are people amassing at that border. The United Nations says we're we're around 200,000 Gazans are now displaced from their homes because their homes have been bombed and they have nowhere to go. There's, I've seen people say, well, why don't they go somewhere else in Gaza? It's it's not it's it's there's nowhere to go. There people are cramped into this little place. There are open spaces, but that would mean people you know, sleeping in fields, uh, you know, or grassy parking lots or things like that. They're trying to get into Egypt. That border's closed by treaty. They're not, they're not, the Egyptians don't let uh, the, the Gazans in and Israel has been bombing along that border. They're not bombing the Egyptian side because that would be an act of war, but they're, they're, they're bombing on this side. So there is nowhere for Gazans to go. Benjamin Netanyahu had said they should clear out because it's going to be bombed. Uh, there's nowhere for them to go. Number two, what is Egypt's role going to be in this whole thing? Uh, Egypt is a neighbor with Israel. Uh, they, they may have to figure out what to do. This is going to be a humanitarian crisis regardless of what happens if there's any more bombing because Gaza is under siege. There's no fuel going in. There's no food going in. Uh, there's no water going in. Gaza can't, the reason you can't see Gaza behind me is because it's dark. There's no electricity. They're going to run out of all their electricity tomorrow because they generate it in a power plant that is fed with diesel fuel. So this is bad all around, uh, but the pressure is going to be on Egypt to say, what are you going to do about this? Because a humanitarian crisis is on your doorstep right now. And we don't know yet. We can, we can imagine that there are conversations going on between Israel and Egypt and by the United States and Egypt. Egypt is, uh, does have relations, normal relations with both of those countries. So that is yet to be seen. And for the families that are looking for their hostages, I mean, in theory, what you've just described is if you're just carpet bombing Gaza, you might be carpet bombing the hostages because you don't see inside 100%. the villains. You don't know who's in there. So that's number one. That's exactly are right. the families going are the what kind of what is being said to the families about how what the strategy is to try to find their people, because to the extent that they might still be alive, I'm sure their families would like them to come home in one piece. Is there a conversation being had by the Israeli government with the families about what the strategy is going to be? Because if it's going to be bombing, that could also impact those hostages. That is not happening, uh, largely because at the moment there isn't a strategy. They might be trying to work it out as we speak. Uh, today, they have started to inform uh, Israeli families of who they think the hostages are. Now here, that's an issue. And I'm going to just, uh, while I'm talking, I'm going to ask your control room whether or not they have uh, the, the footage of the, the interview I did earlier today. But I went to interview a woman who believed her husband was in fact a, uh, a hostage. And you're what you're seeing. This is the woman's mother. We got to the apartment and the woman herself, who I was supposed to interview, was screaming into a phone. And she was saying, why are you telling me this by phone? She was saying it in Hebrew. 
The army had just called her to tell her her husband's not a hostage. His body was found with a bullet through his head. So this is the woman uh, I was talking to. This is her mother. She came down to tell me my daughter can't talk to you now. She's too distressed. In fact, she'd called an ambulance for her daughter because she was that distressed. This woman found out by phone that her husband's body had been found. She thought that her husband was a hostage. She, she had actually given an interview to Stuart Ramsey at Fox News 10 minutes before this, in which she was bouncing their one-month-old baby on her lap and and saying, you know, I I hope my husband will be released soon. And then she got a call that her husband was dead. It it, it does seem that there there was some tension, well, not even some, there was a lot of tension before all of this happened between the Israeli government and a lot of the population, given the way that uh, Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu has been operating and functioning in terms of trying to take over the judiciary, some of the the very aggressive moves um, in Palestinian areas, et cetera, some of the provocative moves. What is sort of the mood on the street of people that you're talking to? Of course, there's the anguish of the people like the woman you spoke with that are getting poor communication and finding out their their people are are deceased. What about the sort of general mood? We saw what Haaretz said, uh, the liberal paper Haaretz blamed Netanyahu for what happened. In general, what are you hearing about how people feel about the way that their government is operating in this moment? Three specific buckets of people. There's the, the first bucket, which you would expect uh, it, when your country came under attack or you're at war. Uh, the bucket that says patriotism first, nation first, uh, everybody all hands on deck in the fight against uh, Hamas and what they did, the, the, the horrific things that happened on Saturday. That's bucket number one. Bucket number two is um, what Haaretz said, which is, you know, uh, the... the the Israeli government had taken its 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 finger off of the pulse of what was going on. Uh, Netanyahu, who is trying to avoid uh, prosecution for corruption, has distracted everybody with everything else, include his, including his attempted judicial so-called reforms. Uh, it caused Israelis to sort of be disunited and and his opposition to uh, you know his opposition to grow. There's a third camp, and I've heard this a few times from people who say this will be. In fact, Aaron David Miller um, said it to Katie Turr earlier, and he's one of the, the, the best-known former negotiators for America on this issue. He said this is going to be the end of Netanyahu, uh, other than the fact that the worst ter- terror attack in the history of Israel happened on his watch. This, this idea that he is the strongest leader of, of Israel is now over. But the flaws in how he has done this have, are going to cause Israelis to say, like Palestinians have said of their leaders, you're not solving Mm -hmm. our problems for us, are going to cause Israelis to perhaps say the same thing. So it is not a united uh, front in in Israel as it relates to Benjamin Netanyahu. I would love to talk with you more. Uh, Stay safe. Ali Velshi, always appreciate you, my friend. Thank you very much. And coming up, a mother's nightmare, Hanin Ricardo, whose daughter, Oria, has been, missi- has been missing since attending the Israeli music festival, received the devastating news today that her daughter had been killed in that massacre. She joins me next. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. 
Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. For the thousands of people gathered for the Tribe of Nova Festival, what started as a night of revelry and peace ended up in unimaginable horror. The electronic dance festival in the desert near the Gaza border became one of the first Hamas targets in the early hours Saturday morning, with festival goers left to run and hide in an open field. Attendees described gunmen blocking roads and ambushing cars looking for people to kidnap. At least 260 people were killed there, and an undetermined number were taken hostage. 26-year-old Oria Ricardo was one of those killed at the festival. Her name translates to the light of God in Hebrew. Her mother last heard from her in a text saying, Mom, I love you so much. And joining me now is Aria's mom, Hanin Ricardo. Um, Ms. Ricardo, I am so sorry for your loss, and I thank you for taking the time to be with us. Yeah. Tell me about your daughter, Aria. What was she like? Uh, It's pretty hard to speak in past tense about her. Yeah. Um, She was, as her name is, uh, light. She brought light everywhere she came. A very happy girl, uh, loved to party, was always the center of everything, every place she came. And she was uh, the source of my, the power of my life source of power. Yeah. And, and she... Yeah. And she she was the youngest of your uh, three girls, the youngest of three. And yes. you, you didn't know that she'd gone to the festival. How did you... How did you find out that she had gone to that festival? Uh, they woke me. I was in New York. Uh, I live in New York. And... Um, they woke me in the middle of the night, telling me that uh, Oria is missing. And from that moment on, I was just uh, trying to to get every kind of information from my friends in Israel, and at the same time to find a flight. And I I, I flew to Israel on Sunday afternoon. Came here, came here on Monday afternoon time. I was still hoping because she was in the missing list. And uh, they found her today. I mean, uh, yesterday, I didn't, it's Tuesday at noon time. Yeah. Yeah. And I know this is hard and I thank you for for doing this. I'm not sure that I could. So I really appreciate you and you take as much time as you need. I, I, I think that I need to speak about her and for her and for all those 1,200 young people that massacred by the Hamas. They have not a bit of humanity in them. These kids went to dance and these kids, I know for sure that these parties are peace people. You know, they love they, they, they all will fight for peace. And now they're gone. And among them, my youngest daughter. And 
I want to know, I want the world to know that every dollar you give to the Hamas, every dollar you put there goes for terror. It doesn't go to the poor Arab people that live in Gaza. They could have turned this place into paradise if they would invest money, the billions they got from the, the EU and the UN and other organizations, if they would have put the money, invested it into the people of Gaza instead of bombs and focusing on how to get rid of as many Jews, as many as Israeli as possible, that might have been peace. And the only thing I can uh, compare these monsters, uh, these inhuman beings are for the Nazis during the Holocaust, the same kind of people. And the world needs to know, and the world needs to fight them. And I know Israel bombed Gaza, but we never start. We always respond. And I, I feel for these Palestinians, these people, I feel for them, but they are hostages. They are hostages in the hands of the Hamas and the Iran and, and all of these terrorists. They have no other focus in life rather than kill as many as possible. And when they're done with the Jews, they will come for the Americans. They did it already in 9-11. And I call this, this massacre that happened in the southern of Israel is even worse than 9-11. This is our 9-11. And my daughter is one of them. This wonderful, this beautiful, cheerful, amazing girl is dead now. And I'm going to bury her day after tomorrow. And my heart is broken to pieces. But I will go everywhere to speak about her, for her, and against this terrorism that goes on in Gaza Strip. And everybody blames Israel. I saw the, the, uh, the letter that the head of the law bar in, in NYU came out blaming Israel for the massacre in, in the Gaza Strip. How dare you? How dare they do that? They put the, you put pictures of the missiles falling on, on Gaza Strip. My heart is with them as well. But what about us? What about our kids? We invested the money that we have in the, in the Iron Dome. So we can protect. If we would have had the Iron Dome, how many would have been mm -hmm. dead by now? Well, how many? Hanin, Ricardo, uh, I want to thank you for being here. Again, our condolences to you. And we'll be right back. So in this moment, we must be crystal clear. We stand with Israel. We stand with Israel. My team has been in near constant communication with our Israeli partners, 
and partners all across the region and the world from the moment this crisis began. We're surging additional military assistance, including ammunition and interceptors, to replenish Iron Dome to any country, any organization, anyone thinking of taking advantage of this situation. I have one word. Don't. President Biden today reiterating that the U.S. will stand by Israel, promising to provide ammunition to the nation after facing what he describes as pure, unadulterated evil. The president and the leaders of four European allies have been vocal about their support for Israel, issuing a rare joint statement. Last night, many famous buildings and monuments around the world were lit up in blue and white, the colors of the Israeli flag. In the regions surrounding Israel and Gaza, however, leaders have been calling for restraint. Egypt is reportedly pressing Israel not to take disproportionate action against Palestinian civilians. President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi reiterated that Egypt remains committed to a two-state solution. In Jordan, officials have been speaking frequently with leaders in the region and beyond, calling for de-escalation and the protection of civilians. While in Saudi Arabia, the kingdom's ministry has called for an immediate cessation of violence. Joining me now is John Brennan, former CIA director and MSNBC senior national security analyst, and Nayara Hawk, former White House senior director under President Obama and former senior advisor to the State Department. I'm very lucky to have such uh, esteemed guests in person with me here today. So thank you. Director Brennan, I do want to start with you. How concerned are you about a wider conflict? If you, if, if you look at what's happening in terms of what Israel's pronouncements are, is that they're going to bomb and bomb and bomb Gaza, regardless of the fact that there are hostages there, so they're going to bomb. But the people in the region, the countries in the region are saying, hang on, we need some restraint and we need some diplomacy. How concerned are you that this ends up widening? I'm very concerned. I think that was Hamas's objective, because they knew that Israel was going to respond very forcefully with probably a bombing campaign inside of Gaza and a ground incursion, which I believe is going to happen. And so also we'll have to take a look at what Iran's role was in this. And if it's uncovered that Iran played a role in deciding to go forward with these atrocious, atrocious attacks, then I think Israel is going to have to respond accordingly. So I do think that this is a very worrisome time. And and the region is really on the brink of a very broader conflict that's going to, I think, change the course of Middle East history. Well, and given that, you know, Israel does not have formal relations with all of the regions, you know, the, the countries in the region, is there an interlocutor that could actually make a difference? Egypt and Turkey, uh, watching what they have to say, given that they also have relationships with Palestinians as well as um, with Israel. But it's not as if the other Arab countries or even um, Iran are pro-Palestinian, right? They, yeah, they've they done are, nothing for right, the Palestinians. They are anti-Israel yeah. in many ways, um, but they have not used diplomacy in the last decade or so to either help the Palestinian Authority with corruption, either to pressure Hamas, um, to, you know, they mostly largely went along with the Trump administration, um, tinkering with what is known as the status quo. So it was something was going to have to change. Uh, but nobody in the region was really taking Palestinians into account with their own geopolitical you wrote a piece, uh, in effect, uh, and you're, 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 it's a very subtle title, your piece. Uh, subtle. Israeli and Palestinian leaders failed miserably. Their people pay the price. And so your your argument then is that this is a failure of leadership both among Israelis and among Hamas. So obviously, there hasn't been an election in, in Gaza in 16 years. They've been running uh, just that part. And then, of course, the West Bank has its own government. What might have been done differently? Because you're right. The Occam's razor answer here is that Israel and Palestine have to separate into the two countries the U.N. promised, right? That, that, that 242, U.N. 242 should be followed. That's the obvious answer. 
Why is it so difficult for people to take the obvious answer? Well, because it's the reality we're seeing in front of us. Is it, there's, it's not a contiguous state. Um, these are not two equal states. And it's hard to even argue anymore that two states is even possible. Uh, there's conversations, uh, even back in the Obama administration, of the discussion of a one state in which all people were existing uh, with equal rights. But hard to how imagine do you, that. Right, how do you do a democracy and still have it protect the Jewish people um, and address Jewish concerns as a, you know, gl- another approach? global community. And, and so that's the reality is what we are seeing right now, um, that uh, people with histories of oppression are now using the power that they have to protect themselves. Yeah. And the other powerful elites in the area are not using their power to help the situation. The leaders in particular, it's interesting you mentioned 16 years, because yes, Netanyahu has somehow managed to be in power for 16 years. Like the indictments. Uh, right. An indicted president who um, was not able to prevent a national security catastrophe. Yeah, we, 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 my, my producers and I were talking about the fact that, you know, it doesn't surprise me that Gazans chose bad guys because they were getting nothing from Fatah and the other leaders in the West Bank who offered negotiation, offered recognition, got literally nothing, and they chose bad guys, and now they're 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 hostages of, as this mom said in the previous segment, in a sense, they're hostages of uh, of, uh, of Hamas as well. Let's talk about this intelligence failure. I'm glad that you're here because this— The intelligence failure here did remind me, in a sense, of the pre-9-11 intelligence failure in the United States. The AP is reporting that Egyptian intelligence—this is their reporting. We have not verified it at NBC, so I will will put that caveat on the table—but that Egypt had spoken repeatedly with the Israelis about something big potentially happening. There had been a lot of provocation um, from the Netanyahu government, and at least there is some reporting from the AP that there was a warning. What do you make of the massive sort of inability to see this coming? Well, I think it's quite shocking. Uh, the Israeli intelligence services are among the best in the world. I work with them many, many times over the, over the years, and they're very good on the human uh, source network as far as in technical collection. But also, I don't think it's just an intelligence failure. I think it was a policy failure. I think, as has been said, Netanyahu has banked on the Hamas being sort of quiet right. and being able to provide them, you know, a limited amount of, of support and allowing then the Gazans to have work visas to go into Israel. So I think he there was a tremendous uh, Deception campaign by Hamas, without a doubt. They were able to undertake this planning over the course of many, many months and without really triggering any of the Israeli early detection radars. Secondly, I think it was just that they were able to understand exactly Israeli sources. And so they were, they, maybe they were feeding bad information into Israel. Who knows? But it, clearly, I think there's going to be a real postmortem here. And uh, I think, again, it just reflects uh, years of just not understanding how how dire the situation in Gaza has been. Right. It's an open-air prison, you know, over two and a, close to two and a half million people there living under a blockade. And so this was just brewing. And unfortunately, the more militant terrorist elements of Hamas started to gain ascendance within the organization sure. and then with support from Iran and other places. Mm-hmm. They are now the dominant part of Hamas. Hamas right. is the governing authority there. Right. You know, they've run social welfare programs, they education, health. But clearly, it's the Al-Qasim brigades, which are the militant part of, of Hamas, that was able to carry this out with thousands, thousands of these very fanatical members of Hamas. Yeah. And that's why I completely understand why Israel feels they have to go in there and crush its residual terrorist capabilities after these atrocious and horrific attacks that need to be condemned by everybody, including by Arab leaders. And you're right, the Palestinians have been ignored for so many years. So exactly. And then to what end? Because if you go in and just start bombing the hell out of Gaza, 
Does that create more equanimity between uh, Palestinians and Gaza who are already facing complete despair, poverty and want? What do you create there by flattening Gaza? It, I, I don't know what is the military aim it, it, of flattening it's, Gaza. Right, to what end? Like, there's nothing good that's going to come out of this, even though we all know this is what the next step is going to be, and there yeah. needs to be a response. Uh, the idea of telling people that, you know, you should leave Gaza in right. advance of an attack. Well, is Egypt going to open a corridor or help well, it's them get out? They can't right? get so, out. <laughs> like, like what, what is the, what was that idea of other people being able to help yeah. in any humanitarian way? It is, uh, it is a conundrum. Uh, thank you all for being here to try to help us unravel it. John Brennan and Nair Haq, thank you both. Up next on the readout, uh, Republicans' confusing message on aid to Israel and Ukraine. Stay with us. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops, on. TVs, streaming. Game console, consoling. Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. The U.S. House of Representatives is still without a leader and effectively useless at a really awkward time in the world. Today, Republicans gathered ostensibly to figure out what to do next with zero sense of urgency. And as they fight amongst themselves, nothing can be done to support Israel or Ukraine, no matter what the politicians say for the cameras. But if we don't have a speaker, we can't put anything on the floor and we're paralyzed. This is what Republican leadership has brought to the American people, paralysis, and it is everywhere. They have 300 stalled military nominations, stalled ambassadorial nominations, and unfilled critical security posts at the State Department. And why? Because they have a completely incoherent governing strategy and equally incoherent foreign policy. They do not want to help Ukraine, which is fighting Iran's ally Russia. But Republicans say they do want to help Israel with their Iron Dome, which President Biden has already done. And whatever it is they do decide that they support, they'd need a functioning House of Representatives to do it. President Biden is quietly evaluating the political viability of linking aid to Ukraine with aid to Israel, while acknowledging that ultimately that decision will be up to Congress. On cue, Chaos Caucus leader Marjorie Taylor Greene told NBC, quote, no, they're two separate matters, not even the same at all. Our government's funding Ukraine's government, funding the proxy war with Russia. Israel has their own government. Israel defends themselves. Two separate issues. Yeah, no. Mm -mm. Ukraine has their own government, too. And what we are funding is their military defense of themselves. But go off, Marjorie. Meanwhile, in the Senate, Missouri Republican Senator Josh Hawley, who cheered on the January 6th insurrectionists, tweeted, Israel is facing existential threat. Any funding for Ukraine should be redirected to Israel immediately. Joining me now is MSNBC. Political analyst Rick Stengel, the former top State Department official during the Obama administration, and David Jolly, former Republican congressman who's no longer affiliated with that party, and I wonder why. Uh, Rick Stengel, I do want to start with you since you did work at State. Can you 
decipher Marjorie Taylor Greene's difference between funding Ukraine, which I guess doesn't have its own government and is not defending themselves, and Israel? You know, uh, it kind of made my brain hurt when I saw the quote on this. Um, In fact, it's funny because there's so many similarities, actually. There are two countries that were victims of unprovoked aggression, uh, two countries that we've had long uh, friendships with. We were the first uh, nation to recognize the state of Israel when it became independent in 1948. Both of them are are dealing with... um, issues that affect the future of the United States uh, that have existential consequences. And so, you know, we've got to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. Our military uh, studies fighting a two-front war, we've got to be able to fund two fronts, uh, Ukraine and Israel. That just seems very clear to me. Um, David Jolly, the other issue is that the amount of money we're sending to Ukraine is, you know, $100 million here, $100 billion here, $100 billion there. A hundred million here, a hundred million there. It's it's smaller chunks of money. We've already been funding Israel at three billion dollars anyway a year. So it, it, they are not like in that sense. Um, but what do you make of the fact that people like Marjorie Green and Josh Hawley are trying to pincer their way through, saying foreign funding, yes, foreign funding, no. Yeah, first, I think it affirms that Republicans are not fit to be a governing party. They're more fit to be an opposition party. And at a time of great global insecurity, we're unfortunately learning that. With the House without a speaker, a nation without ambassadors, and military appointments going uh, unfilled. I think, look, as a baseline, we know, and there's broad agreement in the U.S., that Israel was a victim of terror at the hands of us, not just the Israelis, but the loss of life between Americans and Additional that may be held hostage. So the position of the U.S. and Joe Biden is a right one to call this evil and to say we will stand with Israel. That being said, Joy, my experience in Congress has told me that many Republicans today are allies of, of Israel out of simply a political pledge, not out of actual knowledge. They couldn't tell you the difference or distinguish between Gaza and the West Bank. They couldn't tell you about the complexities of the Middle East. They just know that in Republican politics, you prove your worth not by knowledge about the Middle East, but about intensity of your pledge to uh, to be an ally of Israel. And it's the right position, even if it's for perhaps ignorant or the wrong reason. So to Rick's point, the similarities between align the U.S. align with Israel and the people of Israel and protecting Ukraine from the encroachment and the evil of Vladimir Putin are right in front of Republicans' faces, but they're simply too ignorant to see it. They are motivated by owning the libs and therefore no aid to Ukraine, but yes aid to Israel. Let me ask you this, Rick Single, because this is, you know, especially a lot of younger folks who who take a look at this conflict and, and you know, they don't necessarily they're not necessarily in favor of lots and lots of money going to, to either conflict. But when they look specifically at what's happening in Gaza at what's happening in the West Bank, the other question that I think a lot of people say is, shouldn't the U.S. be using its moral authority to actually solve the problem? Because the problem is despair. Um, and and complete want in places like Gaza that the world really looks away from and doesn't really care about and actually doesn't pay attention to until some people that live in Gaza, meaning Hamas, the militant wing of Hamas, because Hamas is also the governing party there, does something awful like this. And then we look kind of, but we don't really look, look. At some point, doesn't the U.S. need to use its moral authority to say to Israel as their friend, 
The Palestinian people actually need to have a life worth living, so they won't choose Hamas. How come no one ever says that? Because I don't even hear Democrats say that. Yes, that's fair. I mean, the, the, the conditions in Gaza have been likened to a, a, a prison. And uh, when people are brutalized, they, they often react with brutality. We've seen that. One of the things that the Netanyahu government has done is they've tried to separate the Palestinian leadership in Gaza from uh, the West Bank. And that has now backfired on them. On them. You know, the uh, normalization negotiations, which you've talked about already tonight, uh, are a good thing. But what what Netanyahu tried to do is sweep the Palestinian issue under the under the carpet, thinking he could make alliances with these Sunni states. I do think, Joy, that um, behind the scenes, the Secretary of State, the President of the United States, is cautioning Netanyahu. He, they are asking for some form of restraint. Uh, when you brutalize a people, you, you, you come up with generations in the future who, who react the same way. So I do think we're, we're talking about that to the Israelis, and I, and I hope they will listen. And we're, uh, we're going to try to report more this week um, about the attempt to open up a U.N. Uh, humanitarian corridor because the people in Gaza are literally trapped there. They can't leave. There's nowhere to go. Um, all the roads out are bombed and they can't use the sea. I want to talk about the Russia angle just a little bit, David. Um, uh, I haven't heard a lot from Lindsey Graham. He's been real quiet. But he's popped back up um, to say that maybe what should be done on the Ukraine side, if there's a way to sort of sandwich in aid and get it past Republicans, if they can get a speaker in place, which we don't know if they can even manage to do that, and give them more money and essentially fund Ukraine at a yearly level, at a bigger level, so that it doesn't have to become a political issue, essentially to push it past the next election. Does that sound like a viable plan to you? And do you think that's something that could get past this particular version of the House? Well, on the first question, yes, it's a good plan, because we should robustly provide assistance to Ukraine, just as we robustly provide assistance to Israel. and We should do it now. And so the strategy comes into play. Do you couple those together? and risk blowing them both up? Or do you decouple them and you end up with one but not the other? This is where, unfortunately, the malfeasance of today's Republican Party, I think, is going to rear its head, because I'm not sure the votes will ever be there for Ukraine aid. So if you tie aid to Israel with Ukraine, what happens in a dysfunctional house led by Republicans? I think all of the voices right now need to be lending uh, their voices towards assistance to Israel and Ukraine, but also to peace in the Middle East. The war is against Hamas. Hamas has to be beaten. And, and to your question earlier, Joy, and I think it's exactly right, we can't forget the Palestinian people who themselves are victims of Hamas as well. If Hamas can be removed, you can move towards a peaceful solution. And I think when you hear the U.S. and other Western nations say we need to achieve peace, that is true, but it cannot be done with a bad faith broker like Hamas, just like it cannot be done with a leader like Vladimir Putin in Russia. That is the complexity that House Republicans simply do not understand. They're going to play politics with this, and they're going to risk innocent lives in Israel, in Palestine, as well as, or in the Palestinian uh, spaces, as well as in Ukraine. David Jolly, you have used the bad word complexity. You know, people don't like complexity in politics, especially in your former party. They're not into it. Rick Stengel, David Jolly, thank you both very much. Be right back. 
Before we go tonight, we have some sad news to share about a friend of the show. Hughes Van Ellis, one of the last three known survivors of the Tulsa race massacre, has passed away at the age of 102. Van Ellis, known to his loved ones as Uncle Red, was just a baby during that horrific massacre that killed hundreds and destroyed Tulsa's Greenwood District, a.k.a. Black Wall Street. He came on the readout just a few months ago with his now 109-year-old big sister, Viola Fletcher, to talk about their fight for justice. Uncle Red, you, you told me earlier before this interview began, you're going to fight until you get justice. I, I fight. I'm so, fighting. See, I, I had two bunnings. Mom of 1921, drafted the United States Army, bum and dab, I survived. I, I, I'm, I'm pretty fortunate to be here to tell that. But, but I think you should have been gone. I know some guys not as old as I am. I'm here. Yeah. I'm Amen. still here. Amen. I'm here to fight. Fortunate to be here to tell his story and to fight, indeed. After years of back and forth and dismissals from the city of Tulsa itself, the Oklahoma Supreme Court is currently considering the survivor's case for reparations. There are now only two known survivors left, 109-year-old Viola Fletcher and 108-year-old Lessie Benningfield Randall. Our thoughts are with the family of Hughes Van Ellis tonight. And that is tonight's readout. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC.